Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. I'm delighted to introduce the first ever episode of A World to Win. Today, I'm joined by Jeremy Corbyn himself to discuss Corbynism, socialism and the future of our movement in these troubled times. Now, we've been extremely lucky to receive a grant from the Lipman Miliband Trust to get this podcast going. They're a brilliant organisation and you can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. But we need to make this podcast self-sustaining financially within a few months, and that requires to build up our subscriber base. So if you are just as excited to listen to this podcast as we are to bring it to you, you can sign up as a patron on patreon.com slash a world to win pod. That's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. In doing so, you'll get access to exclusive content, behind-the-scenes action, and a chance to influence the future direction of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and to give us a rating if you're a fan. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for updates, all with the handle, a world to win pod. One final thing, we apologise for the quality of the audio on Jeremy's side, The mic that we were using had some difficulties, so we've had to pick up his audio using my mic. So it's not as good as we would have liked. It's not as good as what it will usually be like, uh, but it's still perfectly audible and we hope you enjoy it. Now, without further ado, I give you the first section of the show, The Rundown, which is where me and my guest this week, Jeremy Corbyn, discuss a few topical news stories that caught our eye this week. Hello, Jeremy, and thank you so much for being with me on A World to Win. How are you doing? My pleasure. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me onto your programme. Thank you for, uh, for appearing. So we're going to just start by talking about a few stories that have caught our eye this week uh, and which we'd like to talk about in a bit more depth. And they're both about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the UK. So firstly, we've got a story uh, from the BBC saying coronavirus England highest level of excess deaths. So England has the highest level of excess deaths in Europe. Uh, We're 7.5% higher than last year, next to 6.7% for Spain. So I just want to get your thoughts on that and what the government have been doing wrong to get us to this position. Well, it's appalling. And there are many people who've lost their lives needlessly because of uh, government policy and the governments that refused to face up the reality of coronavirus in January. Let's go through the sequence of events. The World Health Organization spotted a novel virus. China was possibly a little slow to declare it, but you're talking days, more than months in this respect. The World Health Organization warned there was a novel virus. They warned it was an endemic virus, and they later called it a pandemic, and that was all done several months ago. The British government, first of all, ignored it. Secondly, Boris Johnson seems to be more concerned with attacking the WHO than anything else, and indeed um, uh, has made remarks that they're too close to China and so on, almost Trump-esque in what he was saying, although later they kind of relented and did pay a small amount more to the World Health Organization budgets. Then we were involved in meetings with the government in throughout the spring of this year. And John Ashworth and I, I remember distinctly going to a meeting in the Cabinet Office where we got a lecture about herd immunity. Mm. And the last time I discussed herd immunity was when I worked on a pig farm 40 years ago. 
And it was absurd that you actually would uh, build up a herd immunity by allowing people to die. And so whilst the government was going into eugenic formulas of discussing all this stuff, they were not making adequate preparations. The idea that an epidemic or a pandemic could cause a real problem in Britain was actually mooted in 2008. And even then, they identified Britain's lack of preparedness for dealing with it. Mm. We get to this year, lack of PPE, 94% bed occupancy in hospitals, insufficiency of space in care homes, and the whole thing got worse and worse. And uh, eventually, the government got around to saying there would have to be restrictions on movements and so on. Compare that to the response in South Korea, in New Zealand, which got onto it all very, very quickly. And... Uh, then setting up the Nightingale Hospitals was a huge undertaking, cost a great deal of money, much of it went into the private sector. And basically, as I understand it, they've hardly been used. Mm. And so what has been going on, except an exposure of the lack of preparedness of the NHS, a lack of preparedness and management within the privately owned care sector, but also the massive work done by everyone in the NHS, plus thousands of volunteers, plus care workers. And as I was proud to say, the last Prime Minister's question time, I did, saying, who's more important today, a hedge fund manager or a hospital cleaner? Yes, we actually have an article uh, for Tribune written by Colin Lees about that report that was done many, many years ago about the need to make sure the NHS was prepared for a pandemic. So I will put a link to that in the description. Jeremy, I just want you to say a bit more about, you know, you were really trying to push before you left as leader for the opposition to take a much more kind of um, principled stance against what the government was doing. We brought the issue to the shadow cabinet, obviously, as soon as it came up. I asked um, John Ashworth to report on it. He was the shadow health secretary. And we set up a, a COVID emergency group very quickly of the shadow cabinet and that we agreed that John would be the main spokesperson on it, which he was. And uh, we had a series of meetings with the um, Cabinet Office and so on, and uh, made the point all through that the government was A, ill-prepared, the NHS was ill-prepared for it, there was a lack of PPE, and that local government was expected to take the lead in dealing with this crisis in each community and uh, which branch of the public services suffered the biggest cuts in the past 10 years? Mm, local local government. government. And so local government have done their best, and uh, the experience I've had in my weekly meetings with my own local authority is that one is they are efficient and very committed and woefully under-resourced. And so what the council has done has become, in my case, a centre for organisation of volunteers, which they've done brilliantly, and I, I commend them for it. But are we going to be a country that relies on the goodwill of people as volunteers every time a crisis emerges? Because it can't work like that. Mm. There has to be an effective provision of public services to deal with it, and we don't have it. One of the things the government did do was obviously introduce the furlough scheme, which has helped a lot of people who were potentially facing unemployment. But that's obviously coming to an end later this year. I didn't want to introduce the furlough scheme. Uh, when we met um, the Prime Minister to discuss the lockdown, which he was a few days before he announced it, we said, well, what's going to happen to people in work? And he said, oh, we're thinking about that. Great. This is March. 
mm. three months into it, and they're still thinking about mm. it. John McDonnell was very robust with the Chancellor and made very strong demands on that. And I think, in part, the only reason we got a furlough scheme and the private sector bailout scheme was because of the pressure of John McDonnell. Absolutely, John, and the unions as well, a lot of the big unions. Yeah, when there's a crisis on like Corona, it's important that um, the opposition understand how, how serious it is but also make sure that everybody is um, looked after in mm. this. And I just remember this bizarre discussion with Boris Johnson about self-employed people. I'm not sure he's got a clue about how many people lead their lives. Mm. I represent a what is now normal urban constituency. A third of the community live in the private rented sector. A very large number are doing two or three jobs. Many are working from home. Many are working in sort of gig economy, etc., um, and they don't fit into any norm or any pattern. I'm not sure the government's got a clue about how most people lead their lives. And when he bizarrely said, well, they can apply for universal credit or they can apply for statutory sick pay, I don't think, A, he knew how difficult it is to get universal credit or how low statutory sick pay was, mm. and it still is. So, But for the pressure the unions and uh, we put on, a lot of people would be even worse off than they are now. But... There are people around here, not just outside this room, who are in a desperate situation because of this. And it's obviously only going to get much worse when the furlough scheme comes to an end. You know, we've got this jobs retention bonus, but everyone's saying it's it's just as expensive as carrying on the furlough scheme and it isn't going to work as well. And this brings us on to our next story, which was that a thousand people have applied for a single receptionist job in Manchester. A lot of people have picked up on this as showing the scale of the unemployment crisis we're facing. Now, I just want to ask you what you think that socialists should be demanding in response to this, which is going to be the biggest challenge potentially since, you know, the 80s. A thousand people applying for one receptionist job reminds me of the depths of misery under Margaret Thatcher Mm. in the early 80s when uh, there was such high levels of unemployment in Liverpool that people barely noticed whether there was a rush hour or not. There was no discernible change in traffic patterns because so few people Mm. were actually working. This was after industries had been closed down by government decision. And um, we demanded then public intervention, public ownership where necessary and and so on in order to reflate the economy. And uh, that surely has to be the right way of doing things now. If we're putting money into private sector companies in forms of very large loans, which I suspect might well end up as uh, non-repaid or grants, then we should be putting in government-appointed directors as well to ensure that those companies work in the public interest. Now, the government has put in its own director in Transport for London, I suspect with no good intent other than to try and privatise mm-hmm. part of the system. When the Labour government brought most of the banking system into public ownership in 2008, 9, 10, that period, particularly 2009, sadly, they didn't insist on government directors. They didn't insist on a public interest part to it. So I think we have to say, if we're putting money into a big company any big manufacturer, then we should have a say in how that money is spent and it should be primarily about job and community effect on it. And that has to be the right way forward. Just saying it's all going to be all right eventually and giving people a bonus if they eat out. Well, A, not everybody eats out and B, a lot of restaurants really can't be bothered with with operating this scheme. It has to be something a bit more fundamental than that, i.e. investment 
in a housing programme, i.e. an end to all homelessness. That in turn requires further investment in housing, bringing the care sector into public ownership, paying care workers properly and expanding the care sector. All the lessons from Corona are that all the inequalities in our society have been exposed and writ large. And it's been covered up by the way in which the government has tried to control what the media says about this and the wonderful determination of thousands and thousands of volunteers all over the country. Yeah. And you mentioned the the financial crisis there. It seems like we've had two really big lessons in what capitalist states do, basically, in the context of, of the crises generated by an unsustainable and extractive form of capitalism, which is that they try and throw money at the sectors that they think they need to save. And we're getting, as you were saying, kind of corporate welfare, just like we did for the banks after the financial crisis, without any consideration of workers' rights, environmental sustainability. Do you think Have that you there's a... measurement, I'm sure there are, of the effects which I've seen of uh, corona on each community. The wealthiest have been okay, mm. and they've got the most money out of the corporate welfare bailouts. The worst off have suffered the most because many are on zero-hours contracts or whatever, so great difficulty in accessing any, any funds, often stuck at home in small flats with lots of children and suffering all the mental health problems that go with it. In the corona crisis, the gap between the richest and the poorest, already a yawning chasm has got bigger. Mm. It's shocking. Yeah. And one thing that a lot of people are talking about, and perhaps, you know, the opposition could be talking about a bit more, given that in 2019, this was a big resolution that was passed at at conference, was using the idea of the Green New Deal to try and, as you say, boost investment, sustainable housing, and also kind of direct companies that receive state support towards more environmentally sustainable activities, that sort of thing. Do you think that's something that it's conceivable for the opposition to be demanding? The Green New Deal, Green Industrial Revolution, I'm not worried about the title, is something whose time has absolutely come. Uh, I've all my life been involved in environmental campaigns and environmental politics, and at times it feels very isolating. At times you feel that if you believe in a sustainable world, you're only talking to other people who believe in it, you're not going to be hearing anywhere else. And I was determined that the Green Industrial Revolution would not be seen as a threat to people working in what are polluting forms of transport, what are polluting manufacturing industries. Instead, it would become an opportunity for them. And they needn't fear it, they could welcome it. So we had the Green Apprentices. And I was very proud that in our manifesto, when we took part in the Channel 4 environment debate, the environmental organisations, not political parties or anybody else voted our manifesto the greenest manifesto of all and you're quite right because surely the other thing that people have learned in this is that the environment matters when a child of 10 in new delhi has seen the luchians buildings and the arches and the wonderful buildings in new delhi for the first time because there's no smog Mm. they've never seen them before When people have seen relatively clean rivers and breathed relatively clean air, and indeed around here, my constituency is the smallest geographical constituency in the country, the most densely populated, the number of people said to me, you know, Mr Corbyn, I didn't know there were so many birds (laughs) because they heard them for the first time. Now, I don't think there's going to be any going back on that. People have sort of seen a bit of a vision 
of how we could do things differently environmentally. And I suspect that when the figures are out, the levels of asthma and lung congestion will be lower because of this. Now, okay, coronavirus is terrible, obviously, but there are some things that people would have seen and learned from this. And so you're quite right. The way forward has to be investment in that green energy for the future. And that means putting conditions on support for transport companies that they make greener, cleaner fleets, that we do improve the rail service and rail connectivity across Europe to reduce flights, and that we um, promote tough, greener measures on all industries. And you do that by a very assertive uh, way of providing government support. So if we put government money into a car company, we expect them to be making electric cars at the end of it. Now, in this section, we're going to be talking a bit about your life and career. So I want to start by asking you a bit about your early career. You were in Parliament with some towering figures of the socialist movement, like Tony Benn, for example. What did you learn from your colleagues when you first entered Parliament? I want you to think all the way back (laughs) to then. Um, And how did that influence you later in life? 1983, going into Parliament for the first time. Uh, having been elected for Islington North uh, to replace somebody that defected to the STP, it was an interesting time and an interesting experience. And the election was a fascinating one because I was the first and I think only candidate ever to defeat two sitting MPs because there had been a boundary change. And um, John Grant, who was the former Labour MP for Islington Central, who defected to the STP, was one candidate, and Michael O'Halloran had been the Labour MP for Islington North, who defected to the SDP and then defected from the SDP to um, an organisation hitherto unknown and also forgotten, which is, it was his own organisation. Um, and I was elected with about 40-odd percent of the vote, so it was a very tough campaign. Michael O'Halloran also deftly called himself Labour, uh, because those days there was no registration of parties, mm. so you could call yourself anything you like. So you had a, the electorate confused with the sitting Labour MP, as they thought, calling himself Labour, and this fellow called Jeremy Corbyn calling himself the Labour Party candidate. So we had party volunteers with sandwich boards walking up and down in front of each polling station, saying Jeremy Corbyn is the Labour Party candidate. Even my dear mother wore one of these and walked up and down in front of polling stations in Wildmobile. And we did indeed win the election by a few thousand votes. And my majority last time was uh, 27,000, so it's gone up a bit Mm. since then. Um, So anyway, being elected a part at that time, daunting, um, huge constituency demands, huge demands from various left activists around the country. we just lost the election. Um, on essentially Margaret Thatcher's nationalism surrounding the Falklands. And so there was uh, a degree of depression within the Parliamentary Labour Party. And um, I didn't know many people in Parliament when I got there. And I was very surprised when all the new members seemed to know each other. I said to somebody, how come they all know each other? They said, well, they're all in school together, they're all at university. I said, well, okay. That's what it is, is it? And then Joan Maynard, a lovely woman who was MP for Sheffield Brightside, a great friend of mine, and she was a big in the Agricultural Workers' Union, and I'd got a lot of support and sympathy for the Agricultural Workers' Union, even though there's no farms in this area. And um, 
So we go and have tea in the tea room, me and Joan and Harry Cohen, who was then another newly elected MP. And so um, she's kind of no-nonsense is Joan, so she puts the teapot in front of us and the cups, and she says, so, so, shall I pour the tea, Joan? She says, no, no, it's my job. <laughs> so she pours the tea out. She says, now you two. I'll just give you a bit of advice. If both front benches are agreed it's probably bad news for the workers. And if a minister ever gets up and says they're going to have to take some tough choices and some tough decisions, it's a disaster for the working class. Just bear that in mind and you'll not go far wrong. That is incredible that you could literally take that exact lesson and apply it to, you know, opposing the Conservatives at nearly every election throughout the rest of your career. Absolutely. So I listened to Joan very carefully. Tony Benn was not in Parliament during that period because he'd lost in Bristol and then became the candidate for um, Chesterfield. And I obviously went to Chesterfield and campaigned with Tony in the election. He's a wonderful man, brilliant at many, many things, but the world's most terrible bingo caller there ever was. (laughs) I I took him to a miners' welfare club on a Saturday night during the campaign to do the bingo calling. And they said... I think it's better if Mr. Ben sticks to the politics. (laughs) (laughs) What a lovely guy. So Terry and I worked um, very closely together. And uh, the issues I took up were, I was under lots of pressure to do lots of things. So I took up a lot of international issues, Central America and um, the plight of Tamil people in Sri Lanka. And indeed, a few weeks after being elected, I went to Nicaragua and Mm. El Salvador and um, went to Oscar Romero's memorial and various other places when I was there, and also introduced the constituency, two things which were then seen as quite novel. One is that I'd have a local office, which I did in the Carp Hall, which is Red Rose Centre, as was, and that we would have um, regular canvassing sessions on a Sunday when we'd go out and listen to the concerns of people. So... Most Sunday mornings I was out door knocking with people mm. in different wards. And then came the miners' strike. And um, a small number of MPs were completely in support of the miners. And locally, this borough, I was very proud of it, raised £100,000 for the miners in 1984-5. Mm. We did it through council workers donating money from their salaries every week. Um, collections and so on and I spent my time going to picket lines and minor support rallies and so on at the end of it I was very honoured to be made an honorary member of the NUM. Hmm. I mean that was must have been such an interesting time because it was almost the peak of kind of class consciousness in the UK and the working class is so well organised particularly around that that minor strike and the defeat it was, it was, was and yeah she, she had to win it because she was then keen on destroying the print unions as well as the miners' union and the steel unions. So privatisation was put forward and um, it was also important to her to bring in Murdoch and give them mm. power. And so the key industrial disputes were obviously the miners' strike but also the dispute at Stockport Messenger newspaper mm. which was about breaking the union in that paper. And when they'd won that one, then Murdoch went straight ahead with whopping. And I just remember, like it was yesterday, being with Tony at the 
terrible night in Wapping in January '87, when uh, there were huge numbers of people there. There was termed a riot and all the rest of it there. I was actually feeling very ill because I'd just come back from Bangladesh and had got a parasite, which um, people got very alarmed about. So I was feeling very ill, but I was determined to be at Wapping, so I went down there. And then I went to see the doctor the following day, or the day afterwards, that was a Saturday, and I was taken straight into an isolation hospital because <laughs> they thought I'd got sort of green monkey disease or something. They decided I was half dead. And so I was stuck in this isolation hospital at Coppets Ward up in Muswell Hill. And... Um, I was in a little glass room with a black and white television and I was allowed to have books but they pushed the food through a hatch and I got my own little bathroom there and that was it. So it was like, like being a sort of upmarket prison really. <laughs> and then one Sunday night, I was in quite a while, I was sort of half asleep and half awake in bed and then the lights were a bit low because it was about eight, nine o'clock and um, there was this figure in a green garb, you know, the medical garb sort of shuffling around at the end of the bed with a hat on. What's going on? It's a bit late for the doctor to be around. Mm. Who's this? And then they sort of shuffling around and said, I hope you like the books. I said, what are you talking about? And then I noticed this person was carrying a pipe. I got really a doctor at nine o'clock at night bringing me books and carrying a pipe. This is getting a bit surreal. And then Somebody kindly put the lights on a bit more. It's Tony Bear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. He probably said... I Wearing don't. medical... You, that's they made, so they made, funny. He made him wear all the garb to come in. And so Tony Bennett said, hey, you, you'll like these books, old comrade. How are you? So he then sits down, does a long chat. With oh, that's what, amazing. What a lovely guy. Mm, that, is, that is amazing. Yeah, those days were... Incredibly hard work, incredibly pressurised, because we were also dealing with abolition of the GLC, Greater London Council, um, and defence of the Inner London Education Authority. And I had been the joint union secretary up until 1983 for all unions in the Greater London Council and the Inner London Education Authority. I was the negotiating secretary. So I used to negotiate on behalf of what, about 40,000 people uh, in that. So I, I I was a sort of go-to person for the staff side of things as well, as as well as my great friend, the late great Tony Banks, who'd mm. been a GLC, was still a GLC member. Mm. So it was an incredibly intense, busy period. And I learned a great deal. I also learned the lesson the very hard way that without proper solidarity in a big dispute, the NUM could have won. Mm. That dispute was there to be won, and it wasn't, mm. could have been. And that would have been the defeat of Thatcher, and it was saved so much else as well. Because yeah. remember eighty-seven election, when she'd won that again, she stood or split the window in the Tory central office in Smith Square and said, and now we're going to deal with the inner city. Mm. And she did. So I now want you to give us some lessons, because you've spent your most of your career basically fighting for peace and socialism in the context of war and neoliberalism. Now, if, and I say this is a big if, but if the tide does begin to turn against socialists, as it sometimes does, what would your advice be to young activists who might find themselves in a similar position as you in your early career and who might take inspiration from your life? Take inspiration from those that went before. And um, if you look at the 
intense personal bravery of socialists, radical thinkers in the 18th century and onwards, those that were prepared to consider the possibility of a world that was different, such as those who supported the French Revolution, those that supported the American Revolution at that time, and the fact that they then faced charges of treason. Mm. Indeed, Mary Wollstonecraft, who lived in this area, Thomas Paine, who lived nearby, Godwin, all those faced charges of treason um, for standing up for a different world. Fast forward into the 19th century, those that led the Chartists, they stood for something very, very different, and they were vilified, they were brutalised, they were imprisoned. And um, who do we remember? Do we remember the Home Secretaries that imprisoned the Chartists, or do we remember the Chartists for what they stood for, albeit unsuccessful in the immediate time? Take forward again another great socialist, Keir Hardy, a child labourer, worked in the mines, became an organiser for the temperance movement, became a Labour MP, the first Labour MP, and stood against the First World War, along with Juarez and others, in trying to build this European unity against war. And it, for a while it worked, and then jingoism took over, mm. and he was vilified by the media. Indeed, he'd been vilified by the Daily Mail all his life, I know the feeling. <laughs> and um, he died... In 1915, sadly a broken man. Sylvia Pankhurst was vilified at the time. She spoke in Finsbury Park against the First World War. Who do we remember as people that stood up at that time? Do we remember the generals and the cheap jingoists? Or do we remember those that wanted a world without war? So, yes, sometimes times are difficult. Yes, sometimes you do get hit quite a lot. But you should stand up for what you believe in. And I think it's much easier now. There's more of us. And we also have our own forms of communication. I mean, mm. we're having a lovely discussion interview here, a podcast which can reach millions and millions of people. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. At the time I was elected as an MP, the only way of reaching millions of people was either if the mainstream media would let you on or by producing leaflets. And I mm. used to think it was fantastic if... Uh, I used to be an organiser, for a voluntary organiser of the Labour Party in Hornsey. I used to think it was fantastic if we got 10,000 leaflets delivered in a day. You can reach 10 times that in 30 seconds on social media. Maybe then you don't know whether they're reading it or not, but you can get through. So we do have to exploit all the technology that's available for our benefit. And now I want to ask you a bit about your experiences over the last five years. So firstly, what did your experience as leader teach you about the nature of the Labour Party, about the British state and about the wider establishment? That um, the Labour Party is a wonderful organisation and the members of the party join for the best reasons and intentions of the kind of world they want to see. It's too simple to pigeonhole party members into various brackets. They're not. They're all sorts of things. Some are more interested in environmental issues, some in peace issues, some in education and so on. Um, but overall, they want to see a society in which we genuinely do care for all. Hence, we managed to encapsulate that in the Manifesto of 2017 for the many, not the few. Mm. And that certainly caught the imagination. And I'm pleased to say 
largest ever party membership came about during uh, my time as leader of the party, and we did excite and encourage a lot of people. What I also know is that um, there are people in the Labour Party that don't want change, that didn't want that change, and I was faced with a great deal of hostility from the very beginning. I've never forgotten going into Prime Minister's Crescent Town for the first time as leader of the opposition in 2015. The chamber was absolutely packed with MPs. The press gallery was completely full, unusually, normally it's not, and the public galleries are completely full. I've no idea of the makeup of the public galleries, but I knew a few people in there. But I looked around and... Um, there weren't too many people that I'd call close political friends. Mm. In fact, there were about 15 of them mm. out of the uh, 650 MPs there and so on. And so, yes, it was difficult, no denying that. And um, the way in which the most aggressive media attacked me even took me by surprise from the very beginning. I mean, the following day after I was elected... I went to the um, a service in Westminster, in St Paul's Cathedral, for the Battle of Britain. And as I came out, there were some young people voluntarily serving coffee and cakes from a Costa Coffee street store. And they shouted to me, come on over. They said, we'd love to give you some coffee and cake. And I said, well, I don't want to take it away from anybody else. Said, no, 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 it's from us. We want you to have it. All the papers reported that I had taken food and drink that was destined for military veterans oh. from the Second World War. And I realised from that point on what we were up against. Mm. And I have to say a huge thank you to those in our media team who just worked so hard for so many years, fighting off boring mm. stories. And also the way in which my family was maligned and abused, the way in which Lara was maligned and abused. Mm. I mean, the papers even sent a whole team of people around Mexico to look for Lara's family and there were sort of second cousins of hers who had never heard of me but they thought I was probably bad if they said so <laughs> and it was that kind of stuff and we had all that day in day out at one level you can sort of ignore it and say this is too ridiculous for words but the other side of it is that it does have an effect um, whilst the readership of the printed media has gone down a lot and it is, tends to be people over 50 that buy newspapers, not under 50. And that was, of course, mirrored in the 2017 election when our support amongst uh, under 25s was massive. And then it started to taper off from over 40s. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all agree about the, the impact that that coverage will have had on on you know the Labour Party's success during those elections. But I also want to know, what impact that had on you personally? Because it must have been very shocking and quite difficult going from the position that you'd been in as a backbencher to being vilified across the board by well, so much I've of the media. Quite a few times. Well. <laughs> it's okay. This isn't, this isn't all totally new. I, I was particularly vilified for things to do with Ireland, mm. support for refugees um, uh, over the years. So I was used to it, but not at this continuous level of intensity mm. where our house was staked out almost every day uh, by hostile forces and so yes it does have, of course it has an effect when Lara and I the first thing we do in the morning is slightly draw back the curtain to see how many journalists mm. are outside oh. it was the amazing solidarity of people 
after the um, 2017 election, indeed after the more recent election as well, I got a lovely huge card signed by pretty well everybody in my street. I was apologising to them for all the disturbance of their lives. And I said, no, no, that's fine. We're with you. That's amazing. So... Obviously, you know, a lot's happened over the last five years over your time as, as leader. Are there any decisions that you regret or that you would change now if you could? I think the, the issue that dominated everything was obviously Brexit mm. in the end. I campaigned for a yes vote in the referendum uh, because I felt we should remain and reform the European Union. We didn't win that referendum, the result was what it was, and um, after that, the party then went into a long series of debate, and there was huge pressure for a second referendum, and in order to try and bring about a Remain position. I tried to navigate all of this, and it was extremely difficult, no, no question about that, because the majority of party members, probably 70%, maybe around that, I suspect, voted Remain, um, and of Labour MPs, is probably even higher. Uh, although, to their credit, many Labour MPs that represented Leave constituencies did try to articulate the Leave thing. But then, of course, within that, there's lots of other calculations about how is the Labour vote made up in a Leave constituency. Mm. It doesn't mean everybody that voted Labour voted Leave, any more than voted Remain and others. I tried to bring people together, and the words I used were, if you lived in Tottenham, or Mansfield, and you're in the private rented sector and on universal credit, you've got a problem, it's called the Tory government. Your problem is not caused by the EU, it's caused by the Tory government. And so try and bring about unity. And then we reached the compromise we did at the 2019 conference, which went through overwhelmingly, almost unanimously, and that was negotiate a trade deal with the European Union and put the whole thing to a referendum within six months. Almost as soon as we'd agreed that compromise motion, people, particularly on the Remain side, said, well, actually, we're going to continue to campaign mm. to Remain, and quite a lot on the Leave side, we're going to continue to campaign to Leave. Mm. And so I was left in the position of being, I felt sometimes like almost the last person defending the party position. I did challenge the government on this, and Boris Johnson said in one of the TV debates, we'll get Brexit done. I said, no, you won't. Mm. You will not get Brexit done. You're in two years of negotiations with the EU, or you're going to hand over all our social and working conditions to the Americans. So what's it going to be? Johnson didn't answer that. The media didn't press him on it. And um, the result was what it was. Could we have done things differently? Hard to see, but I regret the amount of time and energy that was taken up with endless, almost repetitive debates. I mm. kept notes of every shadow cabinet discussion on Brexit, and there's loads and loads of hieroglyphics that I can barely read myself, except the same words keep coming up in them. Um, but on the other side of it, we did develop an economic agenda that was radically different. Well, I was about to ask you what you were most proud of, so you can answer that one now. Yeah. I'm most proud of the fact that I stood for the leadership on the basis of opposing austerity and uh, won the leadership on the basis of opposing austerity. That was the mandate. And we then developed policies. We've mentioned the Green New Deal and that huge change in environmental politics. We've mentioned the whole mm. human rights agenda and on foreign policy, 
a foreign policy based on peace, justice, human rights and disarmament, not one based on going to war. And I'm very proud that as leader of the party, I commented on the Chilcot report when it came out and I gave a formal apology to military families for what I believe to be the wrong and illegal mm. Iraq war. And I got vilified for that by a lot of people, but I'm proud of what we did because I said I would do it and I did it. Mm. Um, and also I was proud of the um, work we did on the National Health Service and, and Care, which was to bring the NHS back into public ownership and public control. And I was proud of the National Education Service where we'd have cradle-to-grave education, the principle being education is a human right, not a commodity. I'm very proud of the um, pupil arts premium, which would give every child, irrespective of the wealth of their parents, the chance to learn music and creative arts. And so we were unleashing an idea of a creative, developing society with better rights. And it would be a redistribution of wealth. There would be greater charges on the very richest. There would be collection of tax from the tax havens and the tax dodgers. But we've got to do that. We can't go on being so unequal. Is it right? that thousands of people up until Corona were sleeping on the streets of this country. And I was looking forward to announcing as Labour Prime Minister, two days after election, as of now, rough sleeping is over. Mm. I mean, you know, as someone who was working in and around policy at the time, it was an incredibly fertile time for new policies and new thinking and like you were saying it wasn't just kind of rehashing old stuff it was you know properly creative it was about the really was keeping up with it. exactly because we we sent out emails to everybody half million members and all the affiliate members saying bring us your ideas i remember speaking at a big a big meeting in north manchester and a lot of people there were very excited i said and what's more i want you to bring us your ideas and i looked at them they're all going to do it. <laughs> How am I going to cope with uh, 2,000 emails on Monday morning with different ideas? So um, those things were great achievements. But let's not keep looking back. Let's look forward. Well, you you got me onto the next question very well there, Jeremy. Um, I mean, yeah, so at the moment... You know, we are entering a very scary time for some of the most marginalised people on the planet. Not only have we got the pandemic, you've got climate breakdown, nationalist authoritarianism mounting all around the world. And I just want to know where you see the future of socialism in this context. You've lived through so many ups and downs for the socialist movement. Where do you see us going next? You've got to bring people together, but you've got to bring people together in support of those that are in the worst situation at the moment. I was on a big... um, Zoom call last week on the war in Yemen. The poorest, now the poorest country in the world with cholera, coronavirus, unbelievable levels of poverty, and we're still supplying arms to Saudi Arabia to bomb them. And we're supplying money from DFID to deal with the effects of the bombardment. Mm. Wow, hang on. We're providing the bombs that do the bombing, and then we're providing money to rebuild afterwards. Well, how about stopping the bombing? And so I think it is important to connect with people in Yemen and elsewhere as an example of how we deal with an international issue because merely an intellectual condemnation is not enough. You have to do something that's seen as more practical, demonstrations and so on. But it's also about the empowerment of people because corona has shown the levels of inequality around the world. It's shown the levels of susceptibility to infection of the poorest and most vulnerable people. 
and it's exposed an economic model which is about um, investment for the private sector to grow in order to grow the economy without ever measuring what the economy actually is. So if you say, for example, the economy of India has grown by 10% a year and it's doing really well, yes, there is a burgeoning middle class that is doing relatively well. There are millions who are getting absolutely nothing mm. and getting less. And so the measurements have to be done differently and I was keen to promote that. But it's also acts of, um, of solidarity. Now, again, it's because of the technology that's now available to us, we can reach large numbers of people. I did a discussion on a Zoom call, and it was on YouTube and uh, Facebook and so on, with Dilma Rousseff, mm. former president of Brazil. And we had, uh, I think, 200,000 people on the call, and we had millions watching it at various points and picking up on that. There is a thirst around there that wants to see things done differently. And the global environmental movement is the key to it all. We cannot go on global warming, global polluting, without, at the end of the day, us all being affected badly as a result of it. So it is about understanding that people can and do take action in their own communities. I was just reading something an hour ago on the um, Al Jazeera website about urban forests in Chennai. That might sound pretty obscure, but it's not. If people in Chennai, densely populated, very crowded, partly polluted city, are taking matters into their own hands by cleaning up their rivers, cleaning up their lakes and planting trees, then they are changing the world. And that means that becomes an aggregate pressure. And so as we build towards um, COP26, we've got to go for net zero by 2030. We've got to push for it very, very hard. Otherwise, the loss of habitats, the global warming, the extreme climate change will happen. Mm. And uh, there's no getting away from it. A free market economy, with the private sector doing what it likes and being freed from regulation, cannot do it. Yeah, It can only be by public enterprise. Dennis Skinner used to have very wise words on these matters. He said, I remember him saying to Margaret Thatcher once, she was going on about the um, ozone layer and the hole in the ozone layer. He says, you can't have fixed the ozone layer with a man, a bike and an enterprise allowance. <laughs> what a great quote. Um, obviously, like the people who are going to be most affected by climate breakdown are the same people who are going to be most affected by the pandemic, which is the poorest people in the poorest global people, South. Really. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, black people, people in the global South, women, disabled people, etc. All the people who's, you know, you've been fighting for for most of your career. I want to get your perspective on something that, you know, I've been writing a lot about and I haven't maybe seen as much as I would like to from the left, which is that the global South is obviously entering another massive debt crisis. Yes. Now, obviously, this is something we should be campaigning on. The debt crisis is, is massive. Now, in the case of Britain, we have gone into a significant amount of government borrowing in order to cover the furlough scheme and so on. And that is, I agree with that. I should have gone further and so on, but I agree with the principle of doing that. Britain is a wealthy country and can deal with that. But if you say to a government in the global south, you've got to go into lockdown, you've got to close down all your activities in order to deal with corona, I understand that. They are getting deeper and deeper into debt. 
This is going to be a vehicle and an opportunity for the massive takeover of businesses and public services in the global south. It will be another readjustment of global power and wealth in favour of the richest globalised minority at the expense of the, the, the poorest in the south. And I'm not sure this is fully understood. Mm. I think you're quite right to write about it and to draw it to people's attention because this is another debt crisis on a par with the 1980s debt mm. crisis, which did lead to some degree of opposition to debt repayments across Latin America, did lead a bit to opposition to structural adjustment programs. But that, that's why I supported the call, which... Um, I think Bernie Sanders initiated, which was for a global debt write-off. Yeah. I also supported the global call made by Antonio Guterres for a global ceasefire during the Corona crisis. Mm. One thing that we've seen that may be a source of optimism throughout the lockdown has been that um, people in the US and the UK have really come together in order to take action against police brutality and against the uh, oppression and prejudice that black people, that ethnic minorities experience, you know, all around the world, but particularly in some of the richest countries in the world on a daily basis. Mm. Um, How do you think, you know, socialists and the Labour Party could and should be engaging more with this movement? And is this a source of kind of hope and optimism for you about the future of the movement? Sadly, George Floyd wasn't the first person to be killed by police brutality in the USA. Um, What was interesting was the arrogance with which the police killed him in full public view, in daylight, being filmed. And they just thought, it's okay. So they're actually killing somebody in broad daylight. And this led to this huge Black Lives Matter movement growing even faster and becoming a global movement in which people see of themselves something of Black Lives Matter. So it's migrant communities, it's refugee communities, it's discriminated against communities, see something of themselves in Black Lives Matters. And I think this will become an even stronger movement as time goes on and will challenge the established order of things. And um, I've been to quite a lot of the Black Lives Matters protests that have been held in my own community. We held one, obviously, socially distanced and so on, at the archway a bit ago. And um, we had various speeches and so on. And what I noticed was people walking by were sort of looking at us. Almost everyone under 30 immediately walked over and joined. Mm. And they said, I wish I'd known this was on, that sort of thing. And so it is something that attracts a a lot of people who see something of their own lives in it. And I think we shouldn't ever underestimate the power of for the message to bring people together. Coronavirus has also brought together groups of people volunteering to look after their own communities all over the world. And um, when you see people who are truck drivers, law students, whatever, just getting together to distribute food and help people or donate things, that shows that they actually do value public services. And none of these people are saying they want privatised public services. Mm-hmm. They're all saying what they want is a public control and a society run on the principles that everybody matters. Black Lives Matters is one of the most powerful things that's happened for a very long time. And I think it's going to be one of those turning points in, in a way that the 
18th, 19th century abolition of the slave trade, the way in which the civil rights movement in the USA arose in the 1950s and 1960s, this is going to be seen as the modern-day version of it. And finally, one last question. If you could make one request of Keir Starmer and guarantee that it would be met, what would it be? Make sure our party is always proud to be a socialist party. What an excellent answer. Right, now we're just going to quickly move on to the the final part of the show where we want to discuss movements or actions currently being taken by socialists around the world and give you a bit of information as to how you can support them. So, Jeremy, if it's okay with you, I'd just like you to um, I'd just like to ask you about any movements or campaigns you're currently involved in, or hoping to get more involved in now that you have a bit more time um, that you'd like to bring listeners' attention well, I to. Don't have more time. <laughs> Sorry, have the same that was of time. presumptuous of me. <laughs> the same amount of time divided up in different ways. Yes, <laughs> um, I'm involved in a number of campaigns on. Uh, human rights issues globally I talked to it during the interview about the war in Yemen mm. and opposition to that I'm also involved with the Rohingya people and their, and their campaign and I've been doing a series of um, Zoom meetings with Rohingya people around the world to build up on that and to take the issue well it's already there but to make sure it's heard better at the UN Human Rights Council and um I'm obviously involved with environmental issues building up towards COP26. So those are part of what I'm doing. And in the UK, I'm doing a lot of um, anti-austerity meetings, trade union rights meetings, and working with people. So today we're doing stuff in support of um, public sector workers in Liverpool who are endangered uh, under great threat at the moment, and their union PCS is doing everything it can to defend them, working in those ways. Um, and obviously working to represent my wonderful local constituency, which I've always worked to represent. And we will put links in the description to information about all those campaigns and how you can get involved if they're in your area or, you know, donate or just learn a little bit more about what's going on. I've also done quite a few um, collective meetings on environmental issues. And what's interesting is the levels of creativity that come out of this. During the um, pre-election period, I was um, doing a Green Industrial Revolution public meetings around the country, public discussions, which were always participatory, and the best one I did was in Blackpool. Blackpool is a town of great contrast, of poverty, huge levels of mental health stress, former industrial areas of, of Blackpool, and um, that's the kind of town where, to mean anything, Green Industrial Revolution's got to be a success. It was mm. fascinating, creative, exciting uh, discussion and meeting. So I'll be looking forward to doing all of that. And I can't wait to get back on the road around the country on the railways. <laughs> of course. To join in with people. But we've had amazing numbers of um, messages and emails coming in. And uh, as you know, I've had a few legal threats um, mm. made against me. But uh, the public response has been utterly astounding very supportive for which i say thank you very much well thank you very much jeremy for coming on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you